Hello and welcome to the Churchology Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holmes, and today on the show, we're talking to Wade Mullen, who's just released a brand new book called Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. Wade and I have a really powerful conversation, and so I want to ask you right at the front of today's episode, if you are on social media, would you share this episode? Share this episode on whatever platform you're on, on social media, so that more people can hear it. And let's jump right into our conversation with Wade Mullen on the Churchology Podcast. All right. Well, today on the show, we are honored to have Wade Mullen with us today. Wade, how are you? I'm doing well, Mark. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Doing great. And Wade is uh, Wade's a professor. He's the author of a brand new book, Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse. And um, Wade, more and more you hear stories about abuse. You hear stories about abuse in churches, organizations, denominations. More and more things are being brought out into the light and that sort of thing. Um, can you just give us a sense, how prevalent is abuse in specifically churches, denominations, and uh, those, those kind of organizations? Yeah, and it's a good question. It's, and it's one of the most frequent questions that people ask me. It's a difficult question to answer uh, because abuse is so often kept hidden. Right? So we typically only are made aware of it when somebody speaks out, when there's an investigation, when somebody is arrested or charged with, with, with a crime. And so it's, it's hard to know for sure. Uh, but uh, what I can say is that when I, when I began to collect cases in 2015 of Protestant pastors within the United States who had been charged with a crime, I, I was uh, shocked to discover uh, how many cases I found over the course of a few years while I worked on that. And I continue to, to collect cases. And so I, you know, in that first year, um, collected 143 different reports, media reports. Wow. So it's not necessarily even all the arrests that have been made or the charges that, that, that have been brought against the pastor. These are the ones that made it into a newspaper or a TV report. And that really shocked me and saddened me. And also discovered that the vast majority of those charges were related to some kind of abuse some kind and the vast majority of those abuses were sexual in nature and the vast majority of those sexual abuse crimes were committed against minors against children and and so you know that opened my eyes you know to the uh, scope of the problem and also the severity of the problem and so i think people need to know that this is really happening yeah. It's happening across the country. It's happening across d- denominations and various faith groups. There's not one denomination or faith group that seems to be immune to this. And it's also happening in um, in ways that I think would would really shock people. And so I often say, you know, one of the ways that you can perhaps build an awareness of of how evil this is 
is by reading survivor accounts that, that are public or, or listening to uh, stories that have been that have been brought to the public attention and and sitting with those stories and you realize wow you know this this is really damaging this is really traumatic this is causing a profound injury to people within our churches and and so it's not just that it's prevalent but it's also deeply damaging yeah and you, can you give us that number again? You said in 2015, how many cases did you find? Yeah, so in 2015, 143 cases. And our, that was, I started collecting them in 2015. So this is going to get a little detailed here. So in 2015, I started collecting cases for my dissertation research. In 2000, that continued into 2016. And I decided to contain my... Uh, cases for the purpose of the dissertation to uh, bounded years, so to a full calendar year. And so I, for the dissertation, I kept the cases for 2016. And then I also um, recorded the cases for 2017, but I actually started in 2015, if that makes sense. So I, yeah. the, the only counting that I did for the sake of the research was in 2016, 2017. So in, in 2016, there were 143 cases. In 2017, there were 144 cases. And then in 2000, so I finished the dissertation then in 2017 or so, but I've continued to collect these cases since. So in 2018, there were over 250. So a significant jump in media reports wow. in, in that year. So I don't know exactly, you know, the reason for that, but there, there seems to be um, year after year and in either, a, you know, I, this is staying steady, you know, the yeah. amounts of, you know, reports that, that are, you know, being released of pastors who have been charged with a crime or they're increasing. So one of the things that I say to people is that, you know, don't assume that things are getting better hmm. from, from my seat. They seem to be getting worse. Yeah. And these are, and these are the cases that, that you're collecting, that you're aware of. There could be there. Yeah. Unlike, I mean, it's, it's likely that there are likely rather that there are hundreds more even. Yes. Yes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's unlikely that a perpetrator is going to be found out. It's unlikely then if a perpetrator is found out that there actually is going to be a, a charge brought by the police mm -hmm. and then uh, reported by some kind of some media outlet. And so there's, there, there has to be a number of, of perpetrators that aren't being found out and if they even if they are being found out aren't necessarily being reported mm. in a way that the public would become aware of that yeah yeah and this might sound like an odd question but just so that we can have it in mind you know you talk about sexual abuse uh when, when people talk about abuse they those think of sexual abuse physical abuse can you define what abuse is 
because in your book you say that there's there's even more types of abuse than those two categories. Yeah, and so you know, abuse just you know, the, the the basic you know definition of the word you know comes from the Latin of abuti of a b u t i, which just simply means to use wrongly. To, mm. So to use somebody or something in a wrong way is to abuse that person or to abuse that object. So, so I define it in the book, and I don't have the book in front of me right now, so I might not, um, so th this will be a, a, a paraphrase. I define abuse as um, a process in which a person views another person or a group of people as an object to be used for their own benefit. Wow. And they're willing to harm that person for, 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 for their own benefit. And so somebody, when somebody is using you wrongly, I think it starts with them viewing you as an object to be manipulated for their own benefit, for their own purposes. And and so that manipulation, that misuse can uh, happen in a variety of ways. So it's not just physical, it's not just sexual, uh, it's also often emotional. And sometimes these things overlap. And so sexual abuse is also physical and there's an emotional component to that as well. It causes emotional harm and psychological harm. And so these categories that often we work with are legal categories. And so if you are, um, you know, like in my state in, in, in Pennsylvania, you know, there are different types of child abuse that need to be reported if you're a mandated reporter uh, or ought to be reported even if you're not. So there's physical abuse, there's sexual abuse, there's emotional abuse. So these different types of, of abuse that seem to categorize the abuse based on the injury, based on the, the harm itself. But there's many ways in which somebody can be abused. So spiritual abuse is another category. So it's, there's not a legal category for that, you know, but an adult can be spiritually abused by another adult. You know, there's financial abuse that takes place within a marriage often. So there's these different types of abuse. And and what I'm trying to do in the book is to help people see the, the threads that are common to all different types of abuse. And so in, in just, you know, in just about any case of abuse, there, there is deception, for example, there is manipulation happening. There are tricks that the abuser is relying on in order to trap somebody, in order to isolate somebody, in order to control their voice and the, and to make sure that they stay silent. And so, so I think it's helpful for people to understand that ab abuse is, isn't just something that's confined to physical abuse or to violence, you know, so you don't, you don't need to um, create a, create a, a physical prison mm -hmm. in order to entrap somebody. So somebody can be caught in a in a psychic prison and and a lot of victims will say you know yeah you know even though uh, i you know, the perpetrator wasn't holding a gun to my head or even though i wasn't physically chained up i was trapped i couldn't say no and, and so i think people need to understand the, the powerful um the, the powerful effect of 
emotional and psychological abuse. Yeah. And one of the threads you, you talk about, you know, uh, you, you develop these threads in the book, you talk about deception and all of those things. One of the threads that you use in the book is how, how abuse begins with language. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, talk about that? What is the language of abuse? Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I you know, found over time through the research and through my own experience and even walk, you know, walking th through the Bible is that um, evil often uh, accomplishes its objective through language, through hmm. words of deception. So the, you know, the first set of tactics, impression management tactics, you know, that, that I discuss in the book are tactics that I categorize as charms. And so somebody can be charmed through nice sounding words, through compliments, through uh, false promises, through language that is intended to increase an objectified person's liking of the person who's using that language. And so flattery is a, is a form of, 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 of deceit. And it's, it shows up in, in language. And so somebody who is being targeted and object, objectified by an abusive person, perhaps her initial interactions with that person is characterized by a lot of charming language and a lot of nice sounding words and compliments. And the thing is that the abusive person isn't sincere. You know, they're not actually trying to encourage the other person for that person's good, but they're trying to build a sense of trust. They're trying to coerce that other person into thinking of the abuser as a safe person who does indeed have their best interest in mind. And so the flattery is, is a lie that's being presented as what's true. And so what's being presented as true is the abusive person is saying, you can trust me. Um, I have your best interest in mind. I'm a safe person. But there's a hidden agenda behind that because then once that trust is built, the abusive person then often then exploits that trust. And it's often only until then at that point that the person who's being victimized realizes that, okay, perhaps I've been tricked and deceived and all of these nice things that this person has said or all of even gifts, you know, even if it's not words, sometimes, you know, well, everything communicates, right? So even if an abusive person isn't using words, but is relying on a lot of gifts and a lot of helping behavior, a lot of favors going out of their way in order to communicate through nonverbal means or through gift giving, that kind of thing to communicate to the other person that, hey, you can trust me. And, and, and when, when, when in an abusive scenario, all of that is just a facade. It's a, it's a front that the abusive person is putting up. And so I've found that, you know, in most of the cases that I have studied and in most of my own personal experiences, the person who was later discovered to be an abuser was also a very charming person at some point, you know, was also known to be very, very nice to those around him or her. And that's a very disorienting thing because it's hard to reconcile that charm yeah. with what is later found out to be true about the abuse itself. 
And so I'm trying to help people to see that, you know, there are signs that you can look for that begin in the language itself. And the language is often a, a charming language that is trying to present itself as an angel of light, as something that is good and, and, and in fact, when an abuser is using that, it's actually a trap. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you referenced a minute ago impression management. And I thought that was such a powerful uh, part in your book. You, you even paint the picture of actors on a stage and there's things happening backstage and there's the audience. Can you, can you describe what impression management is? Yeah, and impression management is, is something that um, was a concept. It's a concept in sociology that was initially advanced by a man named Irving Goffman. And he was a Canadian sociologist who wrote this book here, um, okay. The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, published in 1959. Hmm. And, and it's, a, it's a fascinating text. And so if you really want to understand impression management, I would recommend reading this. It's an academic text, but it's, it, it's, it's, it's a brilliant text on, on how individuals pre present themselves as they go throughout their everyday life. And, and so you can think of impression management as an act on a stage where there's a performance that's being presented to an audience. And that performance is, is an attempt to shape, manage, manipulate the perceptions that the audience is forming of the actors on the stage of the performance itself. And, you know, in, in every theater production, you know, there's a front stage version, you know, where, what the audience sees, and then there's a backstage version. You know, the, there's a backstage that the audience doesn't have access to. It's behind the curtain. And actors, you know, leave the front stage and they go behind the curtain to the backstage, and then they can stop their performance, right? So they can be free to just be themselves, no the access to what's happening behind the curtain and they can also behind the curtain plan their performance on the stage so that when they come back on the stage and they're then they have they have an act that they've prepared and so that's all that is is a metaphor it's not saying that that you know theater and all of that kind of stuff is bad and it's also not saying that you know the ways in which we manage our impressions in everyday ordinary ways as we go throughout our day is necessarily bad mm -hmm. Impression management becomes a problem when abusive individuals and abusive organizations who are seeing other people as objects to be used for their own gain, when they use impression management in order to shape and manipulate the perceptions that others are forming of them so that they can then deceive them into giving them what they want. And so perhaps, you know, if somebody wants to be seen as trustworthy and they're a leader of a nonprofit, and they present themselves as being trustworthy, someone that the public can trust with their funds. So they solicit money and donations and put forth this, this impression that all of the money that's being given to them is being used to advance the mission of the nonprofit, and it's for the good of the public. But then behind the scenes, that nonprofit organization or the leader at the top of that nonprofit 
might be misusing those funds and using those donated funds to um, to enhance their own per personal life. And so, so what you have is a front stage performance that's being presented to the audience in order to get something from them, in this case, money and trust. But then behind the curtain, there's a very, uh, there's, there's something else going on that the audience isn't aware of. And, and so that's, that's the kind of impression management that I'm trying to help people begin to see. Yeah. I just thought that was such a fascinating uh, way to think about it. And, and, and part of your yeah. book, all of these things started, just started to come to my mind of, of prominent cases of abuse that were brought to light. And there it is in the news and all of these accusations and stories. But when you go to say the church's social media page, come this Sunday, because this is going to be the best week ever. It's, it's yeah. business as usual. Everything is great. Is, is, is that, is that a form of right, mission right. management? Almost as if, the, hey, nothing to see here. We're, we're moving forward. The mission is, is, is still happening. Is that, is that it? Yeah, it, it absolutely is, you know, because you would think that if, if somebody within the walls of the church has been abused, and if that's even made known, that the whole body, you know, use the metaphor of the body, the whole, you know, when, when one part of our body is in pain, the rest of the body gives attention to that. Yes. And continues to give attention to that part of the body that's in pain until it's, it's, it's well again. And I think churches ought to normally react in the same way. And yet what they often do is they try to disconnect, you know, they try to separate themselves from that part of the body that's in pain because that represents a threat to their image often. And so they don't want to be seen as a place where abuse might happen or a place where somebody, an innocent person, a child, might suffer great harm at the hands of somebody within the church. And so they want to separate themselves from that image. And so what they, so what they often do is they just continue the show. They continue to present themselves to the, to, to, to the public and to their members as, you know, as if there's nothing to, 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 to see here. And, and it is a form of an, of impression management. It's saying, don't look at this over here. We don't want you to put, you know, and that's what needs to happen though, yeah. right? But the, what the church is saying, no, we don't want you to look at this, this, this pain, this abuse, this trauma, this un, un, unethical behavior. We want you to keep looking at all the good that we're doing. Yeah. Wow. Would you say that, would you say that impression, uh, impression management is maybe even the first step in building a culture that would cover up abuse. Uh, th this is how we always have to be thought of in the public, you know, so impression management. And, and maybe even without realizing it, suddenly we're building a culture where if abuse happens, we will cover it up because this is how we want people to think about us. Would, would you say that, that impression? It could be the first step towards building that kind of culture. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think it, it often starts there where perhaps the organization wants to, wants to give the impression that they are special in some way or they are, um, they are pure, that they are a place where this kind of thing couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. and, 
And so, you know, I, one common tactic of impression management is self-promotion, where you promote yourself, you promote your values, you promote your successes, you volunteer information about yourself in order to give the impression that you are perhaps better than you really are. And so we do that as, a, that as individuals often, but organizations can also do that where leadership or an entire community can team together to present themselves to the people outside the church as being uh, special, being premier, being exemplary in some way. And so if that's, if they are, if they have this unhealthy preoccupation with putting up a front so that other people will think highly of them, then when somebody comes along that might, when something comes along that might disrupt that image or threaten that image, then the organization I think is more likely to shut that down. So if, if you know, a victim comes forward with a story and perhaps that story is, is reported to the police and perhaps there's a media that article written about that, well, the church might see that as a threat to the image that they have that they have created on the eyes of the public. And so you can often then trace that back to this unhealthy with being seen as always in the right or just a place that, you know, th where th these kind of things don't happen. Yeah. And that as a, as a church planter, one of the things that stands out to me uh, from listening to you talk is that this is almost what's taught. This is almost the air that we breathe, impression management. Make sure things are bigger and better than they are. Make, yeah, sure, so, this, make sure that everybody knows this weekend is better than last weekend. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you point that out. I, 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 <laughs> so it's something that I think about often, you know, that. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's not something that I've really had a conversation with 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 another person about, though. You know, the ways in which our our churches uh, lend themselves to this kind of impression management uh, in ways that perhaps they haven't thought critically about. So, um, how we present ourselves to the public and uh, a focus, let's say, for example, on first impressions, right? And and how that can there can be a, a dark side to that yeah. uh, where we're, we're primarily interested in just forming an impression that will get people in the door. And I think, you know, really what churches ought to be more focused on are the lasting impressions, you know, mm, wow. the impressions that people have of the church when they leave the church. So, so it, it's, for me, I think you know, I'd like to see, in our churches, a paradigm shift, you know, and where we're less concerned about the what people who don't know us think about us, and more concerned about what the people who do know us are actually experiencing from us. Hmm. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things. Um, so, so one of the things that you that you do talk about quite a bit in the book is just how difficult it is for victims to share their story. What, what are some of the things that, that make that difficult? I think anytime that you tell a story of pain, it's, it's difficult, you know, because you're revisiting that pain. Yeah. You know, so that's going to be hard. 
and in some cases uh, fear it will feel nearly impossible and uh, often you know needs you need the support of other people um, but there is also this this fear of telling the other person and not knowing how that other person is going to respond and so you if I tell another person my story or an entire community of people my story, I have no way of knowing what they're going to do with that. I don't know how they're going to respond. So some people, when they hear a story of, of trauma, when they hear a story of abuse, uh, they, for whatever reason, you know, can't even listen to that. Um, and so I've seen some just walk out of the room when a story is being told or they might um or they might see the storyteller as a threat either a threat to them if the story implicates them in some way or a threat to the image that they've formed of the person who is being accused or the people who are being accused and so they might want to shut down that story uh, because they don't want to think about what that story means and the implications that that story might have on the relationship that they've formed with the accused or the accuser or the image that they've had for years about um, an accused pastor, let's say. You know, so I've heard in multiple instances somebody say, I, you know, you cannot say this about my pastor. Hmm. Uh, or um, if, you know, I've heard one, one elder say, if what, if what you're saying, and not necessarily me, but what the story, what the truth teller is saying, Elder has said, you know, if what you're saying is true, then that means that I must have missed this, right? Yeah. So he's seeing this as a threat to his own sense of being discerning, uh, you know. So, so what so often happens is the story and the storyteller are viewed not as people who need to be heard and need to be affirmed and need to be helped, but people who are threatening the institution or individuals in some way. And, and so then the other thing that can happen is a threatened person then can retaliate. You know, they can threaten to physically harm that person. Um, they can threaten to bring a lawsuit against that person. They can threaten to things that they might think will silence that person. You know, so they might say, if you keep telling this story, then it's going to ruin, you know, your life. It's going to ruin your family's life. It's going to ruin the life of the accused. So they're saying, you need to stop doing this because it's going to bring destruction. Yeah. So there's all these different ways in which a victim or even an advocate who's bringing a story of abuse might be shut down by those who are hearing that story. Yeah. And is that a way, so is that a way that, that, that abusers will try to dismantle the world of, of the, of the victim? This is going to impact you. This is going to destroy you rather than, you know, accept responsibility for what they did. Is that what you mean? Because you talk about that in the book, how abusers will dismantle yeah. the world, oh, yeah. internal, external world of the, of the victim. Is that, is that what that looks like? Yeah, so right now I'm more talking 
on on how victims and truth tellers are often silenced, mm-hmm. which is so. This might might help folks understand even the book if they read it. The book really can be thought of as as being divided into two main parts. So the first part is what an abuser or an abusive organization does to charm and control a, a victim. And so I've got a few chapters. The first chapter is just on charms, and I've talked a little bit about those charms. And then the two chapters after the chapter on charms is about dismantling the victim, dismantling the victim's internal world and then dismantling the victim's external world. So I view all that, all those behaviors as being proactive often. So they're kind of part of a, a grooming process. So it's often what's happening before abuse is made known, before there's a confrontation, before there's exposure. And then the second half of the book is a treatment of the tactics that an abusive person or organization might use after they've been confronted or after they've been exposed. So when I talk about dismantling, what I'm suggesting is that often an abuser or an abusive organization will, once they've charmed a person, once they've built that trust, will then begin to dismantle a person's internal life. So their sense of self-respect, their sense of self-worth, dismantle their um, ability to advocate for themselves, right? So somebody might be told, well, you know, you really, you know, you really shouldn't be worried. Um, Somebody might sense that something isn't right and the abusive person might begin to gaslight them and question their own sense of reality and say, no, you know, you're the one that's not right. You're you're, you're making things up or you're confused or, right? So they're eroding away that individual's sense of, of confidence and their, even their own ability to discern and even their own ability to interpret what's happening around them and to them. Uh, nicknaming is, is a common form of, of uh, assaulting somebody's sense of uh, identity and worth where an abusive person often will, will call an objectified, victimized person various names. You know, it's kind of a way to belittle the other person. And so what often happens then is the victim reaches a point where they're afraid of that person. You know, even though they've been charmed often, they reach a point where they're afraid of that person. They feel trapped. They feel like they can't say no. And, and so what's happening is that the abusive person is dismantling that victim's sense of inner confidence, their, their, their inner sense of self-respect. And then at the same time, they're dismantling the victim's external world. So if they wanted to reach out for help, but get help from a therapist or get help from perhaps a, a, an authority, an external agency or get help from a family member or a friend, Oftentimes a victim you know, discovers that the abusive person has been working to, to dismantle that external world as a, way to, as a way of cutting them off. And so they might even say things like, you know, you, you, know, you really shouldn't be talking to them. You know, they don't really care about you. Um, and and friends, you know, sometimes I've, you know, I've, I've encountered cases where even between friends, you know, adult friends where one 
one person in the friendship is toxic and, and abusive toward the other friend. And that friend who, who's been victimized, who finally begins to put an end to this and, 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 and uh, create some boundaries and reach out for help, they've discovered that over time they've, they've lost their friendships with others because the abusive person in that relationship has, has over time controlled more and more their off other friends. Yeah. And so that's an example of the kind of dismantling of a victim's external world that takes place. And so often, often all is proactive where the abusive person is, is using these, var- these various tactics in an assertive, proactive way to, to get the victim to the point where they're both charmed and they're isolated and they're cut off and they're debased. And so help when there is actually an assault that takes place when the when when the abuse becomes more severe when boundaries are clear clearly crossed and let's say somebody is violated in some way they discover that they've not only been charmed but they've also been they've also been dismantled Hmm. yeah wow so wait, wait, just a few more questions. So what, what does it look like for a church or a denomination, a network to respond correctly to abuse? If, if an allegation is brought forward, someone comes forward, what does it look like when someone responds in the appropriate manner? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And, and I'd love to see more and more churches asking that question, you know, because sometimes they, you know, think that that kind of thing will never happen. Mm. And so they are, are overconfident in that sense. And because mm. of their overconfidence, then they have some blind spots and think this will never happen here. And then when it does happen, they're not prepared to respond well. And so I think it's good to even ask that question, you know, what, what will we do, you know, if, if, if we encounter this? Well, I think that if, first of all, you know, if a crime is being alleged or is suspected, uh, and especially if there's abuse that's been uh, known or suspected uh, to have been perpetrated on a child, then the police should be called right away. And then the church needs, I think, to recognize that there are they're not, they're, there aren't just laws that say this is what you need to do, but it's wisdom too, to recognizing that there are people, there are investigators that are trained to do this kind of work and we haven't received that training. And so it's sort of recognizing also that, you know, we need to defer this to somebody else who can actually investigate and discover what is true and then, and then do what's right. So there's that need to report often. Um, so think that, you know, let's say, you know, it's not a criminal kind of abuse. Let's say there are adults who in the church who say that the pastor has been spiritually abusing them, has been lying to them, has been mistreating them. And they bring their story to a leadership team. I think that the leadership team needs to begin with a a posture of openness 
and being willing to listen to someone's story in an unrushed way. You know, so they oftentimes what happens is the survivor or the victim comes to leadership and they want to tell their story because they hope that these are people who will, who will want to know that this is happening and will want to put a stop to it. But sadly, you know, often leadership will say, you know, you know we're going to stop you here, you know, or are you sure you want to tell us this? Or they, in some way they try to communicate to the, to the person who's bringing their story of pain that this isn't something that they want to hear. And so I think it, you know, I, I think that has to be avoided and people need to be willing to listen to this, to, to the story that's being told to them. And then consider um, that it's very likely that that story is true. Uh, false allegations are extremely rare, extremely yeah. rare. And, and people need to understand that. And then hopefully then they will have a process that they've already established for assisting the person who's bringing that story, but then also a process for ensuring that the truth is uncovered in an objective, fair. And so obviously that process is going to be dictated by the situation itself and the type of abuse. But a church, I think, needs to think through this ahead of time so that they know, okay, if, if we're presented with this kind of information, this is how we're going to respond in a way that is ethical, in a way that is lawful, in a way that is safe and fair for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah. And then on the other side of that, my final question on the other side of that is somebody that's watching or maybe listening and, and they're, they're a victim of abuse and they're thinking, who do I talk to? Where, where can I go? What do I do? What would you say to them? Yeah. You know, I would say that talking is an important part, mm -hmm. you know, of the recovery and healing process. And so sometimes, too, you know, an abusive person will convince us that we, we shouldn't talk. You know, we shouldn't even consider what's happened to us. And so I think it's really critical for a person to reach a point where they can tell their story. And sometimes that starts with telling yourself the story by taking an inventory of what's happened to you, which can be very difficult to do. And depending on the situation, depending on what the pain is that you know that might take time and might take support from others but if you don't have somebody else who's available you know or somebody who's trustworthy that you can go to and tell your story to then sometimes it helps just to tell yourself the story there's various ways that somebody might do that um, and then i really think that it's important that somebody reaches a point where they can they can tell their story to a to a professional, competent, caring person, and and allow their story to be um, heard and honored and affirmed, and hopefully told to somebody who can help disentangle all of the threads. Because there's so many lies, uh, there's so much often harm that's been done, relationships that have been broken. 
and I talk about this all the, you know, you know, in the book, the ways in which a victim's whole life can be dismantled. And so there's a need to often put those pieces back together. And that's going to take, that's going to require help often from a professional who's helped others do that kind of work who can also help you do that. You know? So yeah. that's what I would say is, is you know, Dr. Diane Langberg is, a, is a, I think, a, a great voice in this area. She's a Christian psychologist. And I've learned a lot from her. And, and she says that, you know, healing takes, um, it takes time, it takes talking, and it takes tears. And, and, and I think those, I, I think that's a, a helpful, um, I think that's a helpful uh, recipe uh, for healing. And I would also add that the talking, the tears, and the time are also helped by others who recognize the value of that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, Wade, this has been, uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, Wade, people that are, are watching, listening, uh, they want to get in contact with you. Uh, they want they want more of your content. Where where can they go to find that? Yeah, thanks, Mark, for the time and for uh, having me on and and addressing this topic. So I do have a website, uh, Wade T Mullen dot com. W a d e t m u l l e n dot com. And so I post some blogs on there, and then I also have links on there to my other social media accounts. I am on. Twitter, for example, and I try to, you know, share some things that, you know, I think might be helpful to people. Great. And we'll link to all that in the show notes. We'll link to the book. Um, church leaders, uh, I, people who listen to this, some of them are church leaders, pastors. This book is absolutely a resource they need to, uh, they need to uh, check out. So make sure that you uh, pick up the book. We'll point you to Wade's website. Wade, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been great. Thanks, Mark. Hope it's helpful to people. Thanks. Listening to Wade talk about impression management ought to cause a lot of alarms to go off in the culture of celebrity pastors, churches, conferences, and just ask ourselves, where's that going to take us? We have got to be people of the truth, but it's impossible if we're building a culture of lies, manipulation, and just putting out a picture of who we are that doesn't reflect reality. And so make sure to check out the show notes for links to Wade's website where you can pick up his books and, and also how to connect with him on social media. And speaking of social media, if you haven't followed the Churchology podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we would love to connect with you. Hey, if you have a moment, make sure to leave us a rating and review. That helps more people find the podcast. And the best way to never miss an episode is to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next Tuesday. We've got a conversation with Graham Joseph Hill about his book, Holding Up Half the Sky, a biblical case for women leading and teaching in the church. Trust me, you do not want to miss it. So until then, let's connect on social media. And we will be back with a brand new episode next week of the Churchology Podcast.